0: When Carl Christopher Yorwell called upon Swedenborg for the first time, he found Swedenborg working in his garden, tending to plants. That same day, Yorwell wrote down a careful testimony of his visit, which we still have access to today. What follows is an intimate and honest look into Swedenborg and his life's work. Here we are, Inside Off the Left Eye. First, we'll fill our minds with knowledge about Swedenborg's own home base and the extensive gardens he maintained with his own hands. Then we'll team up with Dr. Jonathan Rose to travel to 1764 and join the Royal Librarian of Stockholm and hear Swedenborg himself describe his revelation and purpose this week in history. Hey, Curtis Childs.
1: I'm here. What's going on, Chelsea?
0: Hey. Well, I am excited because we are going to go on an epic adventure to see where Swedenborg was this week in history, Um, which I mention now because right now I want to talk with you about the information that's going to give us like the foundation that we need to go on our journey for this week in history. All right. So it's a little bit of a different flavor of, of arrangement, but I think we're going to get a great experience out of it.
1: Great. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Pre- preparation makes perfect. I, is that what they say?
0: Yeah. That's that's what my mom always used to say, you know, <laughs> foundation makes perfect.
1: They, they taught us right.
0: Yes. And so our foundation for this perfect episode is to talk about this aspect of Swedenborg that we haven't explored too much before in the podcast, which is his property and his love of gardening, you know, like where he lived and what did he do when he wasn't writing a bunch of books? Like, yeah. um, you know, what does Swedenborg do in his spare time? And so in 1743, so early, early on when Swedenborg, well, he was already, you know, he's 55 in 1743, but the beginning of his spiritual awakening story, he bought some property in Stockholm um, on Hornsgatan Street in the Södermalm district of Stockholm. And it was actually sort of two properties, numbers 41 and 43. And it was so interesting because he bought this property, and then he goes away to England and Europe, um, Amsterdam, for two years and has, you know, all of the intense experiences of his spiritual awakening that we've explored in other podcast episodes for those years from 1744 to 1745. And then he comes back to Sweden at the end of August in 1745 um, and settles in to this property that he had just that he had purchased a couple years before. And So, I don't know, Curtis, if you know much about it, but I'm going to go over some sort of the basics of like, this was the place where Swedenborg lived. Okay. I don't know
1: much about anything, so let's do it. Okay,
0: great. (laughs) It's like a goldfish. (laughs) Um, So, the property was sort of a large rectangle, and Swedenborg's main house was on the east end, and he had this gorgeous little summer house on the west end, and... I say gorgeous because I guess I'm partial to it. I love the design of it. You can look it up on online and it actually still exists. You can visit it um in a in a certain museum. I'm blanking on the name of it. But the summer's house was small, it's where he did his uh writing and um and he had a library there too. And so so then another structure that was on his property was his servant's house. So he had his main house and then, you know, near the main house was the servant's house and they, you know, he had a a couple who lived there um, who would take care of his property, you know, when he was on these long journeys to Amsterdam or other places. So they, they would sort of keep things up. But when he was home at his property, he, rather than leaving all of like the yard work and landscaping work and stuff to his servants, he did a lot of the gardening himself because he loved growing plants and stuff um and so the rest of his property you have these you know the main house the summer house the servants quarters the rest of this large property which which i think was like a little over an acre was all of these amazing gardens with pathways and even like this maze for children and and this cool um uh, a mirror house that you can look up online to see where it was like a garden within a garden because if you open the door you see it was this like triangulated so you saw the garden you know a reflection of the garden um and nice. so really interesting little uh accents or things that he did with his garden and sort of like if, um, you, if you were driving yeah.
1: by you'd be like wow who lives there okay mirror- yeah gardens and
0: yeah, and he would often take visitors. So that's what we're going to explore this week in history is when a certain visitor came and had a visit with Swedenborg at his property. And so there's a great work that details some of Swedenborg's gardens that's called um, Gardens of Heaven and Earth by the Dr. Kristen King. And here's one quote from it that gives you a sense from uh, about about Swedenborg and his garden. Okay, She writes... One might expect an 18th century aristocrat to delegate gardening to servants, but Swedenborg seems to have relished the physical labor and contact with the plants and the earth. She goes on to describe some of the, you know, actual plants that he would um, cultivate there. So she writes, Swedenborg's modest garden plot of just over an acre held plants from all over the world and a variety of structures, pathways and beds. In addition to vegetables, fruit trees, poplar and cypress, there were arrays of flowers, tulips, hyacinths, carnations, sweet peas, larkspur, violets, scabiosa, sweet william, canterbury bells, catmint, chalcedonica. Shoot, I don't know how to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Spurry, lilies, sunflowers and roses of many varieties. And he even had an orchard. And like a garden, kitchen garden, a birdhouse, and uh, and we've we've talked in the past about this one um, close friend of Swedenborg's, uh, Retman, who was a horticulturist himself, and through his connection with him, Swedenborg could get seeds, and he loved to collect seeds from a variety of places. So um, he even had. Uh, American seeds, or seeds from America. So in Swedenborg's garden, yeah, there you go, his property, he grew mulberry and melons, buttonwood, beech, dogwood. Yeah, there's this just fascinating record where on the back of some um, notes, uh, sort of on one side there's information about secrets of heaven and his work that's happening there. On the back side, it's his like list of of American plants that he's cultivating in his garden, which is just like <laughs> so fun to get a little insight into that. Well, you got to have
1: insight. I mean, that that's really valuable information to know that his mindset, because this is the the soil from which the Swedenborg's writings grew. I mean, the fact that he's got, even though he's writing about all these angels, he's got, oh, here's, here's my collection. Here's the collection that I'm going to do of American plants. Uh, yes. And I think that that, that is in instructive to me, which is like that he was he had all the spiritual riches he could want and these vivid experiences, but to ground him again, these metaphors, man, are these yeah. puns uh, that was important and and that meant something. But also just thinking about yeah, you know, where is how does he recreate? Where does he take his inspiration? The, I'm sure he's wandering those paths as he's it's helping him write. So uh, to me, it's quite fascinating.
0: Yes, totally. And he, it actually is or. I feel like uh, Dr. King's um, title, The Gardens of Heaven and Earth, is such a perfect encapsulation of that that, you know, every day he's walking from his main house through his gardens to the summer house where he would write. So it's like he's always drawing on that for inspiration and his summer house looks out over these gardens. And so clearly there's this connection with the heavens and the earth through his own little uh, microcosm there
1: yeah and notice that he was a remote worker he had a little home <laughs> office there because <Yes. laughs> of the black plague yeah. or something yeah
0: <laughs> yes and and I, I uh, found it that he that little note was that it was in a um, an almanac for 1752 so he had his almanac and you know there's some information about What's going to press, or something like that, of for Arcana Celestia, and then on the back is uh, are, is this notes about plants? So I think that is cool to think about it being the two that was our sort of two two halves of of who he is. So well,
1: don't go thinking that we're never going to probably have as full a spiritual buffet in front of us as he did, and he still needed hobbies. So don't yes. go thinking, oh, it's you know, it'll be enough for me to. To, to think about the Lord. Yeah. There's You got to round yourself out.
0: Right. Get your hands in the dirt. Totally. That's awesome. So now that we've set the scene, this sort of gives us uh, more of a picture of where Swedenborg is when he's at his house in Stockholm and what his property is like. And so... We're going to have now our, a little brief intermission for our NCE short, and then we'll catch up with Dr. Jonathan Rose to return to Swedenborg's garden to see where he was this week in history.
2: Here's a thought for you. Secrets of heaven, 2572. Because angels love the Lord and share in that love with others, they also possess all truth. As a result, they possess all wisdom and understanding, covering not only heavenly and spiritual subjects, but also rational and earthly ones. Love puts angels at the actual origins or source of these things. That is, it makes angels aware of purposes and causes Love does this because the Lord does it. To see a thing in terms of its origins or in terms of its purposes and causes is to look from heaven at everything below, even on earth. Doing this is like standing on a tall mountain and in a watchtower on the mountain. There you can look around at objects that are many miles below. Meanwhile, the people down below can hardly see many feet away, especially if they're in a valley or forest. It's striking to me to think that angels, who used to be ignorant, baffled humans just as we are now, come into such sweeping knowledge, even of earthly truths, by which Swedenborg often means such things as the sciences, history, literature, and other academic disciplines, but everything else as well. This beautiful gift to angels is reminiscent of the statement about the Lord God in the Psalms. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly.
0: Hey, Curtis and Jonathan.
1: Hello. Hey there.
0: Hey. So here we are, and we are going to explore this week in history, another busy August for Swedenborg. And this, I mentioned with Curtis earlier that Swedenborg returns to his property after having bought it two years before in an August. So he's often traveling in August and arriving places, or uh, which is fascinating. So this week, though, we're going back to 1764. His gardens are well-established, and he is now 76 years old. And following up from uh, last time, last episode, we had talked about how Swedenborg cashed in this investment that he had made and had gotten right to work publishing um, many volumes. His you know what are called the four doctrines and the uh, divine love and wisdom and divine providence. So then after all that, he's coming back from Amsterdam and he arrives back in Stockholm on August 12th of 1764 and that's after him spending the whole year in Amsterdam. And just a week later, he's having dinner with the royal family, having gifted them copies of the shorter works of 1763, and he talks to them about his spiritual experiences. We covered that in our episode, episode five of the podcast of Inside Off the Left Eye, which that episode's called Spiritual Awakening and Swedenborg's Two Publishing Lines. So that's kind of placing him in time because about 10 days after that, on August 28th of 1764... Swedenborg gets a visit from the Royal Librarian of Stockholm whose name is Carl Christopher Yorwell and this is what we're going to explore is this visit from Yorwell because this Royal Librarian the same day as he has this visit with Swedenborg um goes back home and writes a whole testimony of his visit like he just catalogs it in detail and then he publishes that testimony so it's come down through the ages and so that's what we're going to explore today because it gives us a very almost like intimate view of who Swedenborg is from this person who generally I want to say was a little bit on the fence about Swedenborg like um what what would you say about that, Jonathan? Do you have a sense of where your well stood about Swedenborg's experiences and stuff?
2: Compared to other people of the time, he was quite warm, or or he would downplay some of the common criticisms in reviews of of Swedenborg's works. I think he was in a very delicate position because you had the, uh, you know, the Swedish Lutheran Church was the state religion, and so. He couldn't go too far outside of that. He's the royal librarian, and yet he's also interested in any thought that's going on in the country, and so mm-hmm. he's in kind of a delicate position, I think, but actually he's he's about as favorable as I think he can be under those circumstances.
0: Right. Oh, it's such an interesting point to make, and that's so true. And so Yorwell is just like, you know, he's he's hooked up, you know, in the same social you know group that swedenborg is a part of he knows all the same characters swedenborg does because he's he holds that position of royal librarian so he's um he's well connected and uh and clearly is valuing and is very eager first of all to go visit swedenborg and have this one-on-one conversation with him but then document it you know and really it's like a value to him to like this has to get written down um and and then even published so i'm excited
1: uh, for this because it's show don't tell same thing with swedenborg's garden Uh, swedenborg can tell me all about these insights that he's having and spiritual stuff but i want to like what what life did you lead what were you like since after you knew all that stuff so this is gonna give us the scoop
0: so i'm just gonna read through this whole um testimony and uh it's broken up into nine paragraphs i want to say um yeah, and they're all they're all fairly short, um, but so just to give you a sense of what we're in for, <laughs> but but seriously, yeah, it it is it's very interesting. So so it begins. This is your will, and so he writes, Royal Library, August twenty eighth, seventeen sixty four, afternoon. He says, a little while ago, I, the undersigned, returned from a visit to Assessor Emanuel Swedenborg on whom I had called in order to request, on account of the Royal Library, a copy of the works he had lately published in Holland. You know, so those are the seventeen sixty three, so Yorwell has a reason to go. He's like, I want to go and I want to get those books. I met him in the garden adjoining his house in Hornsgatan, in the southern part of Stockholm, Sodermam, where he was engaged in attending his plants, attired in a simple garment. And... I'm going to interrupt myself to say I love that he just shows up and what is Swedenborg doing? He's gardening. He's just out in the garden dressed in a simple garment. So he goes on. The house in which he lives is of wood. It is low and looks like a garden house. Oh yeah, he's, he's saying the house in which he lives, but he's describing his summer house. Um, so yeah. it is low and, and looks like a garden house. Its windows also are in the direction of the garden. Without knowing me or the nature of my errand, he said, smiling, perhaps you would like to take a walk in the garden. I answered that I wished to have the honor of calling upon him and asking him on behalf of the Royal Library for his latest works so that we might have a complete set, especially as we had the former parts he had left with Wilde, the Royal Secretary. So pausing there as well, Jonathan does... Is it true that this might be the first time Yorwell is actually meeting Swedenborg in person? Because he says, without knowing me or the nature of my errand,
2: I think so. That's right. Which is interesting because there, he has reviewed Swedenborg's works before this. Yes, and, and has had copies in the in the Royal Library. But uh, this does seem to be the first time they've met face to face. He was quite a bit younger than Swedenborg.
0: Okay. And, and a was known connection. as a
2: progressive uh, librarian. You know, I think he was interested in a variety of, we should we should gather everything that's going on kind of thing.
0: Cool. Um, well, I love that, that Swedenborg says, smiling, perhaps you would like to take a walk in the garden, uh, which is great. So carrying on, he writes, most willingly, he answered, Besides, I had intended to send them there as my purpose in publishing them has been to make them known and to place them in the hands of intelligent people. I thanked him for his kindness. Wait a second. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Mission mission statement or or strategy alert. Okay, (laughs) so why are you doing this? Well, we're going to get it so people know about the books, and you you smarties have got to get a hold of these things. Um, Yes. Okay. There we go. Check that. There's there's his strategy. His uh um, yes. His what would now be your digital strategy.
0: Yes, he's defining his purpose in publishing them. His he's, goals. He
1: identified his audience, his target audience. Yes. He probably worked <laughs> with a consultant. Okay.
2: And I'm thinking it also probably helped quite a bit that Swedenborg had just dined with the king and queen. Yes. Right. Which the royal librarian would have known. Oh. And so. Yeah. Um, He's got a little more permission to to safely pursue this because oh, yeah. you know the king's and queen's endorsement was was a valuable thing
0: that's great, such a good point so Swedenborg's feeling good you know <laughs> he's he's had a great week uh getting to dine with the the king and queen and the the royal family and now uh So his goals are already beginning to be accomplished. So that's that's awesome. Um, And yet,
2: as you say, here he is in his scrubby clothes out there getting dirty in the garden, which is (laughs) so great.
0: (laughs) Right. One day he's dining with the king and queen. The next day he's just dressed simply, working in the garden. That's great. So into the hands of intelligent people. I thanked him for his kindness. Whereupon he showed them to me, meaning the books, and took a walk with me in the garden. And now, this is great. I'm just going to read through it, but oh, it makes me it brings me great joy. Um, <laughs> Although he is an old man, the gray hair protruded in every direction from under his wig. He walked briskly, was fond of talking, and spoke with a certain cheerfulness. His countenance was indeed thin and meager, but cheerful and smiling. By and by, he began of his own accord to speak of his views. And as it had been in reality my second purpose to hear them with my own ears, I listened to him with eager attention, not challenging any of his statements, but simply asking him questions as if for my own enlightenment. The substance of his statements and of what I drew from him by polite questions consists mainly in what follows.
1: So I think he's he's hedging himself there, too, because he, he's like, listen, us. listen, I didn't fight this guy, but it's just because I want to know... for for posterity, what he said. I'm a librarian. I'm objective, you know?
2: Exactly. It's a tiny little point, too, but I wonder whether, I doubt that Swedenborg wore his wig for gardening. Uh, He probably threw it on when he saw he had company.
0: Oh, interesting. Because
2: one did, but gray hairs are protruding (laughs) like he didn't quite get it on straight or something.
0: Right, like, oh, I'm just, you know, he's just on his, you know, working in his garden, and then he's got companies like, oh, whoops, you know, got to look presentable. Well, it could wig. be
1: a wig on top of another wig. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, well, I just love that gray hair protruding in every direction. <laughs>
2: Meager countenance, it's Interesting but that cheerful. he says he was talkative, isn't it?
0: Yes, talkative, Yeah, I thought cheerful. he had a,
1: had a lisp, but I guess not, um,
2: or stutter, I mean.
0: Yeah, um, that's right, a stutter, but I, I mean, I guess it probably didn't stop him from
2: getting, Yes, and, but, and yeah. that people have said that that was particularly when he was nervous, uh, so yep. if he's in his own garden and this is a friendly person coming over, you know... That's true. Uh, it's not the same as, like, presenting to the people of the parliament or something. Yeah, yeah and and that twice he mentions
1: that uh, he's friendly, and it just yep. makes me think of uh, being driven by charity, that that's the mark of the Lord, is charity and that you should be able to uh, be able to pick out that charity right away, that that should be the thing that strikes you most about Swedenborg uh, before you even hear his viewpoint.
0: Yeah.
2: And he wasn't haughty or come back, you know, I'll, I'll see you next Tuesday or something.
0: Yes, right. He's just like, hey, let's walk in the garden and I'll tell you what I think, ask all the questions you want. Yeah. Here's what follows. His doctrinal system of theology, which he, in common with other Christians, bases upon our common revelation, the sacred scripture, consists principally in this that faith alone is a pernicious doctrine, and that good works are the proper means for becoming better in time, and for leading a blessed life in eternity. That in order to acquire the ability or power to do good works, prayer to the only God is required, and that man also must labor with himself. Because God does not use compulsion with us, nor does he work any miracles for our conversion. As regards the rest, man must live in his appointed place, acquiring the same learning and leading a similar life as other honest and modest persons who live temperately and piously. About the atonement and our Savior, he said not a single word. It is a pity I did not ask him about it, but his thoughts on this, our fundamental article of faith, may be inferred from his expression about faith alone. He also said that Dr. Luther was at the present time in a state of suffering in the other world, simply on account of having introduced the doctrine of faith alone, although he is not among the damned. And he puts this little note in, I use everywhere Swedenborg's own words. So that's interesting to have it sort of by way of this you well, but this is what Swedenborg said to me, I just love that, getting an insight into what he just says in conversation versus what he's carefully writing down in his books, you know? Well,
1: yeah, and, and it's like this: the library gentleman is asking him, hey, give me the elevator pitch for all your stuff. Yes. So I want to know, yeah, what what do you mention first and what is most important? If you had to boil your 25 billion word books down into a few minutes of conversation. What would you say? So it's very interesting.
0: That is very interesting.
2: I wonder if Jorwell is covering himself um, for saying we didn't talk about the vicarious atonement, you know, even though that's the most important thing in our religion, because he knows the theologians are going to say, well, come on, you know, that's the most important thing. Didn't you ask him about that? Yes. But he says you can infer it. And also it's interesting that in True Christianity, published in 1771, uh, Luther's doing better. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So this is 64. You know, those seven years were were good to Luther uh, Mm -hmm. in the interim.
0: That's true. And we cover that story in our episode about um, celebrities in the afterlife. Uh, So people could uh, hear more about that that whole journey there. And so he's mentioned Luther, and now Yorwell is saying... We talked doctrine, and now Swedenborg started to get into talking about his own spiritual experiences and like his own experience of heaven. So he says, the transition thence to his own revelation was easy, since he said that he had often seen and conversed with Dr. Luther. His principle of knowledge is a supernatural sight and hearing, and the criterion that both his principle and his revelation are true is this that God revealed himself to him in May 1744 while he was in London, and that since that time, God had prepared him by a thorough knowledge of all physical and moral powers in this world for the reception of the new revelation. And ever since that time, he has constantly and without interruption been in communion with God, whom he sees before his eyes like a sun. He speaks with the angels and the departed, and knows everything that takes place in the other world, as well as in heaven, as in hell. But he does not know the future. So I'll pause there because that's, that's the paragraph break, but I find that so interesting. I feel like nowhere else... Swedenborg says that the Lord appears before angels like a sun, you know, like before their eyes. But I've never heard him say that about himself. <laughs> you know, but that that's... He's got that uh, And it's particularly
2: view. the highest heavenly angels who see the Lord that way. I never thought about it before either, but
0: oh, yeah. that seems
2: to suggest that, you know, that statement we talked about in a prior podcast about he's turned into the heavenly kingdom in an image. Um, yes. Very interesting.
0: Yes. And, and then also that he knows, you know, everything that takes place in the other world, but he doesn't know the future. So he makes that acknowledgement.
2: It's almost as if Yorwell may have asked him, what about the future?
0: Yeah, if this is all coming from questions or something. It's fascinating to think about that and this, who Yorwell is thinking of as his audience for this work that he's writing, that his testimony of it. So, so he continues, His mission consists in communicating this new light to the world, and whoever is willing to accept it receives it. The Lord also has granted him this revelation, that he may make it known to others, which he has done in Latin, the most universal language in the world. He alone has received this revelation, which also is a most particular gift by which he profits for the enlightenment of mankind.
1: It's a very positive review so far. Yeah,
0: it really is. Yes.
1: There's some straightforward reporting, but there are so many opportunities to be mocking Swedenborg or disparaging or questioning his motives, but it's it's really been very, very uh, favorable, neutral favorable.
2: I would agree.
0: Yes. So, um, he who does not scorn this light and does not resist this revelation receives it, and this revelation is a living truth. Its object really is that a new Jerusalem is to be established among men, the meaning of which is that a new church is at hand, about the nature of which and the way to enter it, his writings really treat. So that's an interesting description. And so about all this, he spoke with a perfect conviction, laying particular stress upon these words, quote, all this I see and know without becoming the subject of any visions and without being a fanatic. But when I am alone, my soul is as it were out of the body and in the other world. In all respects, I am in a visible manner there as I am here. But when I think of what I am about to write, and while I am in the act of writing, I enjoy a perfect inspiration. For otherwise, it would be my own. But now I know for certain that what I write is the living truth of God. Unquote. That is amazing. I'm pausing again.
1: I haven't. So, yeah, I, I feel like. I don't know if I've ever heard something approaching that clarity and conviction around the nature of his words in his yeah, words.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that distinction for him to know, like, oh, this is not coming from me. You know, like I am just the vehicle for this inspiration. This, like, yeah. Um, so he's not taking any credit. You know,
2: and it's for the good of all. That that kind of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So he gets in the zone.
0: Definitely. Right. I just love that he keeps, he's used that a couple of times, the living truth. And, um, and he says like this revelation is a living truth, which I just, my sense of that is like, it's just reality, you know, and I'm just trying to articulate it. Um, but that, you know, there's something dynamic and alive because it is what is, you know, uh, and also that he's trying to communicate his experience to your well and whoever your well is going to tell about this. Like, you know, he's got none of the, you know, I can just say, oh, yeah, maybe it's like astral travel or out of body experience or this or that. You know, like we have all these terms for what we can see may have been what Swedenborg was sort of experiencing when he's sort of saying, like, I'm not a fanatic. It's not visions when I'm home. It's just like I'm in the other world, you know, and like. Uh, but that was not, like, a common thing that people just, like, made YouTube videos about.
2: And I have to say, librarians are awesome. You, you know, they, <laughs> yes. they're often the butt of jokes or, or whatever. But, but uh, it takes a librarian to go over there and get a statement from the author himself. Wow, yeah. And then sign it and date it, even what time of day, mm. everything. With all these details, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's impressive.
0: Yes, the carers was, of information.
1: Yes, the, the, his summary is really thorough and astute, and I'm sure that it was just a waterfall of, of maybe unfamiliar stuff that Swedenborg was was setting out. Even he had reviewed his books, but I just I just feel like that summary is right on.
0: Yeah. So, all right, there's just a couple more paragraphs here. So he he quoted Swedenborg where he's like, that's the, uh, you know, his perfect conviction, laying stress upon those words. And then he continues, when a man dies, his soul does not divest itself of its peculiarities. These he takes with him. When I could not refrain from asking him what Professor Dr. Nils Valerius busies himself with, quote, he still goes about, he said, and holds disputations. So, that's the end of that paragraph, and I just wonder, like, I'm—is he making an, an inside joke, like, <laughs> with whoever he knows is going to read this? Because <laughs> uh, it goes if over by head. If I'm not mistaken, head,
2: but... Nils Valerius was the uh, first um, uh, chair in charge of pursuing and persecuting heresy.
0: Oh, um,
2: it's. Is Swedenborg's little five word yes. uh, description of of how he's doing in the other world. <laughs> you know, still goes about and has dis- disputations. Or, I don't know. I find that very interesting.
0: Yes. And then he says he could not refrain from asking him what this guy was up to. I wonder if it has anything to do with, you know, a suggestion of Swedenborg's stuff being heretical, you know, or something. But I don't know. Uh.
2: And Valerius, I believe, had passed not long before i don't have the dates in front of me but
0: (laughs) that's funny like oh he still goes about charging people for heresy you know (laughs) that's interesting all right the final paragraph closing it out his former works were printed in london but his latter in amsterdam he has nevertheless been over to england in order to present them to the royal society and his return home He presented them in Copenhagen to the King of Denmark. Even as last week, he presented them to both their majesties in Drotteningham. They have been favorably received everywhere. He had only 12 copies of the works with him in this country, four of which are intended for the public libraries, and four more for our most prominent bishops. That all this is Swedenborg's own relation, and that everything I have written I have seen and heard with my bodily and ears— I attest with the signature of my name, Carl Christopher Yorwell.
1: Things heard and seen.
0: I know, it is things heard and seen.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's like a deposition almost. Uh, It's very interesting to wonder exactly what motivated him to be so precise about this. But as you say, I've read lots of those reviews of Swedenborg's works from that time period and they're often just mockery. You know, I mean, they don't take it seriously for one second. And Yeah. And uh, this is a very fair appraisal. Um, yeah. A, a balanced sort of statement and just an investigation with not a lot of injection of his own views. In fact, none at all that I can see.
0: Yeah. And he, I just think... So, like, if he's the royal librarian, Swedenborg has been on his radar for years, you know, and so if this is the first time he's getting to have a one-on-one, an interview with Swedenborg, like, I think by this point, you know, Swedenborg's been known for at least five years in terms, like, the, you know, the Great Stockholm Fire stuff when he was in Gothenburg was back in 59, right? So, um... He's been around, and so he kind of knows at this point, like, this is important. Like, this this is valuable historical information, you know, if I can be capturing something here, which is brilliant if that is at all part of his perspective, because uh, cause it's just so true, you know? Like, I love that he, for whatever reason, had that thought and plan to go have this conversation, visit with Swedenborg, and then go home and write the whole thing down. It's just... Wonderful.
1: Well, you talk about legacy. I mean, here he is getting a lot of airtime on Inside Off the Left Eye. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) exactly.
1: The guy chose the right industry, the right
0: subject. Props to Yorwell and all librarians.
2: It feels like a a scoop, you know, almost like a really high-end reporter and really nailing down the details. I mean, who else? Do we have any other? There are other testimonies, but this kind of— I visited with Swedenborg, here's what he looked like, here's what yeah. he said. I, I can't think of anything that's quite on that level. You know, Bayer and others have reported conversations and so on, but yep. this guy is almost like he's got a camera crew and you can yes. see him there in his garden. And uh, it's a really interesting piece of reporting, and I'm grateful that it exists.
0: Yes, Ah, that's so true. Well, thanks to Carl Yorwell for doing that uh 18th century production <laughs> of writing down this testimony so that we could do this uh 21st century production. <laughs> um it really it's really great and that's why I wanted to give a whole episode to this because it does give you such a intimate um and seemingly transparent view of Swedenborg and what he says about his works and himself and uh his revelation I mean it's just packed and so that it's really great to get to go through it all with you both
2: very fun thank you yeah really
1: great it's just like well it actually it is quite marvelous to get that uh it's like you're peeking underwater with goggles on and you can just see everything Really, clear, what was sort of obscured is like, oh, I can see all the details. So that that is really a remarkable yep. view.
0: That's right. All right. Well, thank you both so much. This has been amazing, and thanks for accompanying me on the journey. So we, uh, I look forward to doing it again next time. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out. And thank you so much for listening. We are so grateful for the generous support of our donors who make the production of our content possible. If you want to make a donation, go to otle.com slash donate. I'm Chelsea Odener, and I look forward to the next time we're together inside Off the Left Eye.